Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Native Americans are among those showing support for the people of Ukraine. A colorful headscarf that made its way from Ukrainian immigrants to Native communities is part of a social media campaign to show solidarity with the Ukrainian people under siege. We'll find out the history of the scarf and how it is incorporated into Native traditions. Many Native people are drawing parallels between their own histories and the violent oppression of Ukraine. We'll hear more about it coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The St. Regis Mohawk Tribe has announced a decision in a dispute over reservation boundaries. On Monday, a federal court ruled New York State's purchase of reservation land in the 1800s violated federal law. The court found the state did not have federal approval when it sought about 2,000 acres from the tribe, violating the Non-Intercourse Act. The ruling affirms the tribe's claim to the land known as the Hogansburg Triangle. Tribal leaders say it's a tremendous win and are seeking to regain title. Congress has earmarked millions of dollars for cancer treatment on the Navajo Nation. The Mountain West News Bureau's Robin Vincent reports advocates hope this paves the way for more treatment options across Indian country. The Navajo Nation's cancer treatment facility is one of the first to be located on tribal land. Advocates celebrated its opening in 2019, especially given the deadly repercussions of uranium mining. Navajo people face high cancer rates that some experts link to uranium contamination. Now the facility will receive federal dollars to offer services like radiation oncology. Attorney Brandy Tomhave, a member of the Choctaw Nation, works on this issue. This represents a historic moment because it's the very first time the federal government has invested a single dollar into the creation of cancer treatment on an Indian reservation. Tomhave says natives battling cancer have died simply because they couldn't access treatment, with some facilities located hundreds of miles from reservations. For National Native News, I'm Robin Vincent. Organizers of a recent annual environmental fashion show in Juneau disqualified one entry that was entirely in Clinkett. Some question whether the decision was racially motivated. KTOO's Yvonne Crumry reports. Kachgun Rochelle Smallwood's piece stood out. That's wearable arts MC Richard Carter introducing the piece. Titled Yahin Awe Yakusti, it towered over the audience, standing more than 10 feet tall on the model Magdalena Kahlo. The title of Kachgun's piece, its description, and the music behind it are all in Klingit. Her piece made an impression on the audience. Every year during wearable arts, professional judges come in and weigh each piece in its presentation. Then they pick their favorites and Kachgun's piece got left out of that process. The Juno Arts and Humanities Council management, which puts on the show, says this was because of miscommunication and a time crunch. They made assumptions about whether Kachgun wanted her piece to be judged. The model who wore the piece, Kahlo, as well as other artists and models at the event, 
complained of racism and exclusion backstage. These complaints worked their way up the chain to Nancy DeCherney, the Juno Arts and Humanities Council's executive director. The council apologized for the miscommunication, and its board members say they held two meetings to discuss those complaints. During those discussions, Juno Arts Council staff determined that there wasn't racism involved in the decision to exclude Kachkun's piece from the judging process. But the model Kahlo disagrees. And then for them to just be like, no, it wasn't racist, like, okay, well, you don't get to decide that. But to Kachkun, it was essential that none of the hlingit she used for the piece be translated into English. Native artists don't have to explain their art or their indigeneity for people. We don't have to digest it for them. Going forward, the Juno Arts and Humanities Council management says they're considering removing the judging process from wearable arts. In Juno, I'm Yvonne Crumry. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Amerind, the 100% tribally owned insurance partner working with tribal governments and enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian country. Info at Amerind.com. Support by the Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center, dedicated to cancer research, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations. A no-charge online risk assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assessme. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. In many Native communities, the kukum, a colorful floral scarf, is an elder matriarchal tradition. But young people are sporting the scarves lately to express their solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Native women of all ages are posting selfies with headscarves that have their origins in Ukraine. Today, we'll hear how the scarf became a popular symbol of indigenous matriarchy and its intersection with Ukrainian immigration. And you can join us. What do headscarves mean to you? How do you wear your kukum or grandma scarf? What do you know about where the tradition comes from? Join us by calling in 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Brandy Morin is joining us today from Treaty 6 territory in Alberta, Canada. She's a Cree, Iroquois, and French journalist. Brandy, welcome to Native America Calling. Chauncey, thank you for having me. Joining us from Saskatoon in Saskatchewan, Canada, is Marianne Mutala. She is the author of the Baba's Babushkis, excuse me, Baba's Babushka series. She's Ukrainian and Slovak. Welcome to Native America Calling, Marianne. Hi, Dobrodan and Slava Ukraine. Uh, prayers to, for peace in Ukraine. Amen to that, Marianne. A little farther south, down in Many Farms, Arizona, is Calandra Etsidi. She's a designer and owner of Winston Paul Fashion. She's Dene. Calandra, welcome to the show. Yep, uh, hello. And also joining us from the southwest in Acoma, New Mexico, is Shae Lucero. She's the owner of Earth and Sky Floral Designs, and she is Acoma and Laguna Pueblo. Welcome back to NAC, Shae. Thank you for having me. Brandy, 
please kick us off with today's conversation, the Cook'em Scarf. Tell us more about it and how it connects many First Nations people to Ukrainian settlers. Yes, so um, it's just a beautiful floral uh, scarf that comes in many different colors, and it has been incorporated uh, into our culture, particularly more prominently among the young people over the last uh, 10 years or so, but it's been embedded uh, into our culture for probably the last century. I mean, from the stories that I've been told, um, it was gifted to the native women uh, where I'm from and across the prairies by Ukrainian settler women who had come here from the Ukraine. And uh, there was friendships established between the two, you know, of respect and uh, commonality because uh, when the Ukrainian settlers came over, they were, um, you know, very impoverished and came to these new lands um, without really knowing how to, you know, cultivate and survive on these lands. And I'm told that uh, the Indigenous nations that were here, uh, you know, welcomed them and, and showed them um, how to survive in some of this really uh, tough terrain and that the Ukrainians were also considered outcasts of mainstream society. So we know what has happened, you know, with our people when colonization happened and racism and, and how our people were treated uh, less than. Um, the Ukrainians were also treated that way, uh, as I'm told, and they also experienced, you know, racism and they were sent to specialized schools and were uh, not allowed to speak their Ukrainian language and were uh, told to assimilate into the Canadian culture. Yet, through all these years, they've managed to uh, hang on to their culture and traditions. And uh, where I'm from, the Ukrainian people have always treated our people with respect. There's always been good relationships there and they are, you know, our people have never experienced mistreatment or racism. And so this symbol um, that came in the form of these scarves as friendship and respect, um, you know, was really um, welcomed into the Cree and other Native cultures. And, um, you know, it, it embodies so much, uh, you know, within how their culture is very um, grounded, I guess, <laughs> no pun mm -hmm. intended, <laughs> into the earth, a theme such as like the flowers and uh, different elements such as that. Brandy, uh, kukum, that's a Cree word. How does that translate into English? So kukum means grand grandma or grandmother in Cree. So, okay, so when we hear them referred to as grandma scarves, that, that's where that kind of make, all makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, traditionally it's been worn by a lot of, you know, more elders, more elder women, but, um, you know, the younger generation has been really incorporating the scarves into their regalia or just into their, you know, their everyday fashion for, I don't know, I'd say maybe both the ten year, last 10 years more, more prominently. I noticed like some of the jingle dress dancers at powwows. That, that's where I've mm -hmm. seen them mostly at powwows. Um, and then tell me more about like these modern fashions. Like how are people rocking mm -hmm. the, the cook'em scarves now? 
Oh my gosh. So they, they can come in different sizes now. So they can come like, you know, in a regular size scarf and then they're made bigger now. So you can use them as a wrap or as a skirt. Some people, you know, fashion them around their necks or in their hair or even, you know, like the old style, um, you know, underneath your chin wrapped around your head like a cookum. <laughs> Some people <laughs> even wear it in that style. So it's quite versatile. And like I said, it comes in, they come in many different colors. Um, and they're just, they're absolutely beautiful. And they really fit well with the Cree and Métis culture up here because a lot of our designs like beading or regalia is centered around, you know, flower, different flowers and landscapes of, of these areas. Yeah, yeah, I agree. They, they, they really seamlessly blend into so many native outfits for sure. Let's bring Marion into the conversation now. And Marion, we just heard Brandy uh, give us some history and talk about this longstanding kinship between your Ukrainian people and First Nations people in Canada. So tell us more about that connection. When did Ukrainians first start immigrating to Canada? It's about 120 years, and she is dead on in what she said of the history. Uh, it's exactly accurate. And uh, if it wasn't for the Indigenous people, Ukrainians, uh, they helped Ukrainians settled in Ukraine. And when we talk about the babushka, we call it the babushka, uh, which is the Ukrainian headscarf. But it's interesting because in Ukrainian, the actual word is fuska or huska. And uh, babushka, the people that were in Western Ukraine, which are like my grandparents, my ancestors came in 1911 and 1912 from Ukraine to, and they settled in Hafford, Saskatchewan. They came from the Western part there, Lviv, uh, Zupkovo, and Presapar, the two villages they came from, and settled in Hafford, Saskatchewan. And so um, if you study about kind of the history of, of the scarf, and which I've done a little bit, uh, women have been wearing headscarves since the beginning of time, whether it was for respect, uh, religious reasons, or whether it was for preservation from the weather, or maybe it was fashion statements. But in the Ukrainian culture, uh, a woman wore it, um, when she became married. So actually at their wedding ceremony, the women often had braids. They would take down their braids and they put the babushka scarf on her head once she became married. So it was a very sign of respect and that you're um, transitioning to a new stage of your life. Interesting. Um, so and, and the, the babushka is not just unique to Ukraine. What are some other Slavic countries where you see them worn? I think any of the eastern, especially the eastern areas, Romania and even Russian women wore them. And actually the word uh, babushka in Russian means old woman. And so that's an interesting history, too. And um, that's part of the reason why I wrote my Kukums book, Kukums Babushka, a magical made to Ukrainian tale, because I was at Word on the Street. It was a literary festival in 2010 in Saskatoon, and I had my first book there. Baba's Babushka, Magical Ukrainian Christmas. And it's the story of Natalia, this little girl who actually is me. And a beautiful babushka lands on her head and it becomes a magic babushka because it swoops her up, takes her back to Ukraine, and she meets her Baba. And her Baba teaches her all the Ukrainian Christmas Eve traditions, which are true the Sviat Vachir, 
the 12 meatless dishes and kucha and all the beautiful traditions. And then I wrote an Easter and then a wedding. And then the fourth one is Kukums. And when I was at Word on the Street, this indigenous gentleman, Kelly O'Kami, came up to me and said, Babushka, Papushka, that's a Cree word. And I said, really? Isn't that interesting? And he said, yes, it means she is wearing. And I, so I had to investigate and find out a little bit more. And I knew the, the um, elders, especially the Kukums, always wore babushkas. But then I investigated more. And uh, in 2017, I published Kukums Babushkas through Gabriel DeMont Institute, which is an indigenous and Métis uh, publishing company in, in Saskatoon. And we looked at the commonality between the indigenous people and Ukrainians. And if you look at, there's a lot of commonality. Uh, for example, the beadwork. You know, Ukrainians have embroidery and beadwork, and so the indigenous people. Also, the fiddle playing, the violin is so important to both cultures. And they also have the spirituality, a common roots of, of the creator and, and very spiritual people. And so I uh, invented this little story where the first pioneers came to Saskatoon area. And I also investigate that there was a round prairie Métis, um, like a little uh, place in a little church on the way to Dakota Dunes. And they have a little graveyard there because one of the first uh, Métis communities settled by um, Dakota Dunes there. So they still have a church and a graveyard. So I actually went to see that. And so I figured that they probably met and then they came and then they exchanged goods because my mom, Sophie Dubeck, always talked okay. about in Halford that Marian, we're going to have come. to go ahead and go to break. So I'm, I'm going to let you finish that story after we come back from break. But folks, whether you call them kukum scarves or babushkas, we're talking about the native connection with the headscarf to the people of Ukraine back right after this short break. Long before its recent invasion of Ukraine, Russia colonized parts of Alaska, subjecting Alaska natives to subjugation and oppression. Centuries later, that legacy lives on, and in many cases has been merged with Native traditions. We'll hear more about it on the next Native America Calling. Hey, I'm Mr. Healthcare Walking Away is a chicken, and it's not on healthcare coverage and eaten and up to. As that I you and can end and to your Miss Agua Mos Awash or Bretter that this healthcare.gov with our one and die is done. 1 800 318 2596 and pen and I can up to. Look, Medicare, Medicare services don't happen to need to lock in our Elaqua. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Cookham scarves, those colorful floral grandma scarves that were once ubiquitous in many Native communities and is seeing a resurgence as a show of solidarity. Join the conversation. Tell us what this scarf means to you. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Before we went to break, we were listening to Marian Mutala, a Ukrainian-Canadian citizen, and she was sharing some of the history of the babushka scarf and also talking about her own family history. And Mary, we had to take a quick break there, but please go ahead and finish your thoughts. Okay. Well, I was telling you a story about my mom, uh, who is Sophie Dubeck, and she grew up in Halford area. And she often would say that her grandma or my, my grandma, my baba, 
would have a pot of chai or tea on the stove uh, all the time because uh, many people would drop in, and especially the indigenous people would drop in, and they'd bring fresh fish for them, and then they would often trade with their bread. And Ukrainians love their bread, their kolach bread, so they would trade with bread or different kinds of things, and they probably traded with the beautiful babushka scarves. And uh, my mom had many babushka scarves, and in my books, um, I have a scarf, a different colored one for each book. And the one that goes with the Kukum's babushka is uh, a beautiful yellow one with big flowers on them because it was the story took place in summertime and it represents the sun. So they're kind of symbolic with each of my books. I have a green one for springtime and a blue and a red one for Christmas time. So they're just beautiful, beautiful scarves. Okay. And we do have a caller on the line. So I, I just want to ask you one more quick question, though, Marion. Um, I know Babushka. You've told me how that translates. But what about Baba? How would we translate the title of your book series, the whole title? Yeah. So it's a grandmother. It's a grandmother. So I'm going to be a Baba soon. So that's an honor. And it's a, it's a huge honor, honor for uh, Ukrainian women to be a Baba. Okay. Thank you. Well, folks, we do have a caller on the line. Her name is Niagara. She is listening uh, in Chinle, Arizona, and uh, she's got something to say about headscarves. Niagara, you're on Native America Calling. Hello, Sean. To all the listeners near and far across the great indigenous countries, my name is Niagara Rockbridge, and I am Miss Navajo Nation 2021-2022. And I want to come on today to talk a little bit about what we call Masana scars, which translates to grandma scars. Often um, we refer to it as that here on the Navajo Nation, and we utilize it for, uh, for many different purposes, such as clothing and most recently masks. I have one currently on right now. But, you know, one of the main things that I've seen, even within my own paternal grandparents, uh, when she wore it and when my grandpa wore it, were really to um, use it for sun protection because that was our form of sunscreen, uh, essentially. And so also, you know, for the men, they use it as their headbands during the traditional ceremonies, which we can see, you know, in some of the ceremonies that we were, I was able to attend. And most importantly, the recent years, the youth have been using it to symbolize and honor the elders. They often wear it hanging off the right side because we believe that on the right side of our left and rights, our right symbolize our mother, our grandmothers, and things of that nature. So they usually use it to symbolize the elders, the grandmas, grandpas. We call them mastanes and nalas. And uh, most recently to raise awareness on certain topics or stand in solidarity with the country of Ukraine. And we do offer our prayers and thoughts from the Navajo Nation to the people of Ukraine. But I wanted to come on today to talk a little bit about that and hope that you all have an amazing discussion. And I've been enjoying it so far. Well, Niagara, thank you so much for for calling in and congratulations on, on your title. Very, very wonderful that you're able to take the time to join a conversation. And let's bring in our other guest, and she's uh, from the Southwest as well, Calandra Etsidi. Calandra, uh, Niagara just got done giving us some history on the headscarves. Did, did Navajos always wear headscarves, or is there some evidence that they came from elsewhere? Um, they, ob- they always worn headscarves. Um, but hi, Niagara. She's our Miss Navajo. Um, so, yeah, to add on to that, they've always worn headscarves. 
um, before that. This was all before, this was during trade. Um, so, yeah. So, adding on to what she, oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. Please continue. Adding, adding on to what she said. Um, so, like, I am a designer, so I wanted to research where these um, floral scarves came from. And I went all the way back, back to 1975. Um, these scarves, what we call Sony scarves and um, what people call cocoon scarves. And um, so the, the Pallovia Passad, that is the name of these shawls. Um, it was founded in a village of Pallovia near Moscow, Russia. This is all through research. And it was tradition. I'm going to tell how I, how I um, researched it and how it came about. So I feel like I have a timeline. Um, so the traditional Russian scarves were used for dressing up and for special occasions, um, showing uh, social and marital status, um, agreeing with um, the lady before me had said. And these scarves were worn by Russian Orthodox women on their way to church. And again, during these times, the embroidery prints and fabrics would indicate where a person came from because these scarves were made at their home. <clears throat> so the florals we see are the roses and dalas. They represent wealth, elegance, inner strength, change, creativity, and dignity. So mm -hmm. moving on to the 1960s, they began printing because these scarves became so popular in mass produced in 1960s or 1860 1860 i'm sorry they began to be printed on shawls and they were no longer woven so before they would be woven with silk and wool and linen and now they're just simply printed and in the 20th century uh the palovia the palovia boshta or facade i can't say it because they're russian words um, it was the largest producing of shawls and, like, silk handkerchiefs in Russia. So during that time in the 19th century and then the 1917s came, the factory was nationalized. And this is where we got industrialized and machines and, like, this was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. So this, the scarves became massively produced. They became—you were able to— you were, the products were no longer woven. Everything was mass produced, printed. So there is an authenticity that you can see in these Palovia scarves, where the details in the rows and the dollars, to see if they're real or fake. The, when you look at the scarves, you'll be able to see the realisticness of the, the, the flowers, the dollars and the roses. So that's how you'll be able to see that they're, um, they're real and authentic. Okay. And Thank you so much for that that long history of, of both the scarves and the fabric that they're made from. And I just want to ask Marion, quickly, Marion, um, are we pronouncing this word correctly? Pavlovian? Pav, can you help us out there, Marion? It could be Pavlovian. Yes, it probably is like that. Yes. Pavlo okay. is uh, part of the Ukrainian word. Yes. So it could be okay. Pavlovian. Yeah. And, and she's right on that area. And that's the same with the, the beadwork. And the dress 
all that and the, even the pasanka eggs, the uh, eggs that they hand write, uh, depending on what the area you are in Ukraine, uh, you know, that tells you where you're from. And so the same with your, your dress and your embroidery and the headscarf. So that's, that's very true, too. And, that. Okay. and, you know, Russia had conquered Ukraine for 80 years and it was a communist, but it was probably actually Ukraine that were producing them. And, uh, you know, Ukraine has been conquered by so many countries. Germany was there. And, and uh, Lviv, where the uh, western Ukraine used to be called Lenberg, and also the Polish were there at one time. So if you look at the history of Ukraine, it's over 200 years of different cultures conquering them. Okay. And that's why it's so important now that we speak up, because we have our own distinct culture, and Ukraine has a right to have their own culture and traditions, which they preserved and brought to Canada. And for 120 years, we still do them here in western Canada and, and all across Canada. Okay. And I understand Ukraine is a bilingual country. And if I were to make a comparison, I would say, um, so, you know, the Ukrainian and Russian are, are both spoken in the, in the country and they're related, but they're distinct. And I, I think you could almost think of it like uh, maybe Navajo and Apache, right? Related languages, okay. but distinct or some of the different Pueblo tribes, uh, for instance, like Laguna that speaks Karis, but then we also have other Pueblo tribes that speak the language, but, but it's different. It's, it's very different to understand. So let me bring uh, Calandra back into the conversation. And Calandra, so you use these scarves. You have a, a design company. Uh, you do all this work with, with modern fashions. How do you use the scarves in your current work, contemporary fashions? So currently, um, our, before I was making makeup bags with the, with the scarves, and, um, and then it trickled on to me making skirts. I made a skirt like a while back, and I was just like, oh, I feel weird like using this for clothing. So I just used it as a cosmetics bag. Um, so, yeah, that's how I use it. I just use it for um, accessories, um, of course, for headbands. And like Niagara said, um, how folks um, hang the the scarves on their side so like definitely a fashion statement um so yeah and then worn through ceremonies like she talked about so yeah and i also want to tell how it came onto the navajo nation if that's something we're, we're able to talk about so everything yeah, okay so before all of this, like I said, everything was industrialized of textile, like there was cheap machine made fabrics that were making their way through the reservation and onto the on throughout the West. <clears throat> and fabrics were being integrated into the net apparel. So like this is where like the, the skirts and the blouses you see, we adopted that from Spanish. So, like, there was a lot of trade happening through trading posts. And one of the trading posts that is really, that goes back in time is the Hubble trading post. <clears throat> so, these scarves made their way onto the reservation again through trade, imported goods. And, again, at that time, Arjuna folks were trading, and this is how they obtained the scarves. So, in the 1930s, the scarves integrated into our into what we know now, like how our masanas wear them. And then, where is I? Oh, again. So at the time, um, at the time they begin um, again 
integrating foreign-made goods into our contemporary clothing. We use them in shawls and skirts and et cetera, like how I was talking about, like, me modernizing it. And I mm -hmm. feel like this is the way for us creating these items is our way of, like, again, um, being connections, being in connections with our Masenes and our Nalis before us um, since they were the folks that were wearing the scarves first when it was first traded through, like, the trading posts throughout the reservation. So at that time, um, everything was through trade. So and yeah, through through um, through that. Also, I want to ask um, another folk. Uh, I forget her name. The lady, the one that we've been talking to, like back going back and forth. Um, I Marianne. have a late Marian. So I have a lady um, who's Russian. She used to be here, and I used to buy my scarves from her, and she would tell me stories of these scarves and. She told me that when people referred to these scarves, like where she's from, the babushka scarf, she says that that's offensive when you call it that, to, for somebody to say the babushka scarf. So, like, it's offensive in a way. I don't okay. know if that's true, ask, but that's what she told me. Let's, let's ask, Marion, can you comment on that? Well, well, what I'm, if she's Russian, babushka means old woman in Russia, babushka. But we call it in Ukrainian babushka. So it's a little different. It's pronounced a little different. And I actually did some research on that, and that's what they call it as old women. So maybe she thinks it's offensive because the scarf was referring to a woman that's old, like a stada baba, a really old woman, right? So that's maybe where she thinks it's, it may be offensive. But in Ukrainian, it is not offensive. It's babushka, and it's a, a very honorable word. And, uh, you know, so it's a, the difference between Russia and, and Ukrainian, right? Yeah, really interesting cross-cultural connection. And, and thank you, Marian, for, for that information, because that's, again, that's interesting how just different languages, different cultures. Um, Calandra, how do you feel about this whole outweigh this whole outpouring of support for the people of Ukraine and that the scarves have become a symbol of that. I honestly feel so proud of how the younger folks and everyone are stepping up and people are starting to have a voice and are voicing against it, you know, because I have um, the person that I buy my labels from, he's from Ukraine, Kiev, Kiev, Ukraine. I can't pronounce it, but he's from Ukraine and I was very hopeful talking to him, and he said, he's like, I know these scarves are popular with your with your Native American side. It's so funny because we have language barriers. But he's, he's like, he's very, like, sentimental, but I haven't spoken. I'm about, to, I'm about to be sad, but I haven't spoken to him in almost, like, two weeks. And the last I spoke to him was February 26th when things were getting really hectic, and he was very hopeful so, like, I'm so proud of where our Native American, all of our Indigenous folks and how we are standing in solidarity, solidarity with these folks. Um, so it's really nice that you're actually hearing voices of the young, like, people in my age and all of us, like, having voices against this because it's really awesome how we all come together and how we all connect through a, sim through a scarf and not just, like, saying, like, a scarf, like, saying like how we all have connections and ties and how it connects us to our grandmothers and 
I feel like there was a photo going around on the internet, and it was uh, Ukrainian women having the scars wrapped around their face, and then they had the masanas and the nollies like ran the same. And I don't know, it just it does something to you, and it just makes you want to be there and stand up for them. So that's one thing that I'm super proud of with all the indigenous folks all over that we're able to all come together and support a country. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you, Calandra. It is awesome to see how Native people have been galvanized and, and rallying around this issue in support of the people of Ukraine. Well, listeners, if you have a question or a comment, anything about headscarves, however you uh, refer to them in your Native community, please give us a call. We've got a lot of interesting guests on our show today, and that number, 1-800-996-2848. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce, and we'll be back right after a short break. Support by Amerind, Indian Country's 100% tribally owned insurance partner. Amerind works with tribal governments and their business enterprises to provide effective commercial insurance coverage, strengthen Native American communities, protect tribal sovereignty, and help keep dollars in Indian Country. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto solutions at Amerind.com. That's A M E R I N D.com. Thank you for tuning in to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about cookum scarves today. What do they symbolize in your Native community? Who's wearing them? There's still time to join the conversation. Please call in 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's bring in our fourth guest for today's show, Shae Lucero. Again, she is the owner of Earth and Sky Floral Designs. Shae, where can we see the scarf in Pueblo communities? Hi, everybody. Um, our connection with the Ukrainian or Russian Eastern Europe scarves um, actually came via the railroad. When the railroad started moving in to New Mexico um, around the 1880s, uh, it started bringing different cloths of trade um, onto our communities. And even in Acoma and Laguna by the 1870s, we had the Bebos and Marmons who were running the main uh, trading posts in our communities. Um, and as you know, um, or some people may or may not know, uh, Solomon Bebo, who is a Jewish man from New York, was also governor of the Acoma people at one point. And he, um, but, but with those trades, we started incorporating um, these scarves as part of our traditional clothing. So it's not much it's not much of a fashion. It's more of a traditional um, clothing aspect. Uh, we women wear them on our back as a back apron as part of our traditional clothing because um, in, you know, for centuries, um, our honored women were, were given uh, woven capes either made of turkey feathers or um, were woven with the the long, strung, um, long string cotton 
that our Pueblo people grew. Uh, and so you will see those type of capes on the Hopi women, uh, women of up north, the northern Pueblos, and the turkey feather capes were pretty common for um, the western Pueblos. Um, and those were only given to the very honored women of our communities because it took a while to, to, you know, to create those turkey capes or to create um, even a woven woven um, cape or shawl that our women wore. And so when these scarves started coming in, we noticed that there were flowers on them. And our Pueblo people have an affinity for flowers because the flowers bring the pollinators and the pollinators are the ones that um, help our crops grow. So as you, you know, Sean, in our Pueblo culture, a lot of our prayers and ceremonies are prayers for rain. And so since we already had floral embroidery that were incorporated on um, our clothing, like the mantas or even the kilts the men wore, papekas that the men wore, you know, just other different things um, that were already part of our traditional clothing, the floral scarves um, were an easier way, I guess you could say, of incorporating um, those flowers, that embroidery, um, that intricacy into our into our clothing. And so we kind of fit it into what we have what we already had and what we were already wearing. And then, you know, the men would incorporate it into their headbands, especially with the floral designs, particularly the singers, because they're the ones that are singing about the rain, you know, prayers for rain. Um, and again, rain is a big thing in our Pueblo culture. And so, so for, for, for the Pueblo people, it's more of a traditional clothing aspect that we incorporated into our culture. Now it's become a, a symbol that we, of, of, you know, not that, you know, we have in our culture, but almost like a symbol of solidarity across the United States, because um, I've, I've gone, um, you know, to powwows, very many different communities, and I always and if I see a floral scarf, I will go to that person and even ask them, oh, where did you get your scarf? And even among the Arab and Muslim women who, who do wear um, their head scarves, I'll see some of them having, you know, similar types of floral, um, floral scarves and we'll ask them where their source was. And a lot of them are coming. Um, a lot of people that I do talk to have that. Um, direct connection to the Ukraine, Eastern Europe, um, Serbia, you know, that area where, where, right. it, where it originated. Yes. Right. Shai, that's, it's just fascinating. And, and yeah, I do know, I do know, <laughs> you know, a lot of this culture and, and I've seen um, these scarves at feast days my whole life, but I've never, never known the origin until just now. And, and so thank you for that lesson. And, do you think uh, most people, uh, most Pueblo people, understand the history behind these scarves? Uh, or are they like myself and just don't really know, just, just seen them all their lives, but never really understood the significance? Um, I think there's a, there's a majority of people who may not know the history. 
Um, the knowledge that I received has been from my various elders from not only Axman Laguna, but from uh, Hamas, um, as well as my Kiwa and um, Kotiti relatives. You know, just 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 asking how, why do we wear these, um, and and then also making that connection of of seeing the embroidery that once adorned our our mantas, um, which are the black dresses that our women wore, and and you know when when a young girl where gets her first manta, um, it's it's plain. And there's there's um, a small amount of uh, horizontal embroidery of red and green that goes around the the top and the bottom of the dress. Now, when a woman gets married, um, or before she gets married, that's when when you become a Marian age. That's when your family adores adorns you in jewelry. So it would be the the shells necklaces, the manta pins, you know, you because you're trying to express how well your family takes care of you. But then when you become married and become a mother, um, it's kind of impractical to chase a toddler with all these manta pins. So in order to make that mark that transition, the women began embroidering um, the flowers and the different elements on our mantas. Um, and or the men actually would begin um, embroidering the 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 these designs on our mantas, um, and that actually marked a transition that you moved from into that stage of life. So like the so like the sister from up north who said where you know where she indicated the the women would put on the headscarves, and that marked that they moved to a different status when they got married. It was pretty much the same thing. Is, is yes. you know, that, yes. was, that was, there's that, there's that connection there. That is so moved into a different stage of life. Yeah. Amazing. Shay, uh, are the scarves hard to find? How do Pueblo people get them? Um, well, I, I actually, um, I have some of, um, I believe it was the, the young lady from Arizona who stated that about the, the way the textiles were created. I actually have a scarf that was owned by my maternal grandmother that is the actual wool woven floral scarf. And that came from um, Russia. She, was, she, was, she actually traded that scarf or more than likely traded that scarf in for her, with her pottery because um, my grandmother was, was a potter, um, and I inherited it. I have not used it. It's still, it's still folded up nicely in its box. Um, but um, prior, you know, prior to that, it was, it was all in terms of trade, and they were very expensive because, like she did state before, the industrial age came in, and there was machines that could actually do the printing. Um, it was, it was, it, it was, a lot harder to come by because they were actually um, textiles that were woven. But um, now there are countries uh, or actually factories um, that are directly, you can directly order. Um, but I've just, I've seen it more mass produced uh, locally um, here in the United States, but it's more printed. It's more of a printed fabric rather than um, a true textile. Okay. Brandy, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation. And you know what I think transfixes me most about today's show is 
what appear to be long-standing, deep-rooted connections between some Native people, First Nations people, uh, Native American people from the U.S., and Ukrainian peoples. And here's what I mean. So often, as Native people, I think the narrative we all share is that white European settlers have been bad for North American indigenous peoples, whether they came from England, whether they came from France, from Spain, from the Netherlands, they all spelled pretty much bad news. But what I'm hearing today is something very different. A group of white European settlers who have a great track record, or what appears to be a great track record, of dealing with Native people. So my question, Brandy, is this. Why haven't we heard more about this connection with the people of Ukraine until now? And why has it taken a war to bring this story to the forefront? Yeah, you know, I I agree with you. I mean... The Ukrainian settlers have really um, been an example of how the treaty relationships here were intended to be, to, uh, you know, walk together and to share their land and the resources together in a respectful way. Um, of course, you know, it was it was a very troubling time for our people here when, you know, the Europeans came over and literally invaded our territories. And so, you know, that the Ukrainian people were always set apart in the way that they uh, interacted with our people. Um, and these stories uh, go far back in all communities. And even there was tons of intermarriage between Ukrainians and our people. And there's many people that exist uh, you know, on the reserves here that are, you know, Ukrainian and indigenous. I don't know why it took this war for it to be talked about so prominently. I just think that many people, many indigenous people are, you know, feeling this so deeply because we know already what it's like to be invaded. We know what it's like to have our sovereignty threatened. And um, it, it's very hard to, to look at what's happening. And because so many of us consider them, you know, our friends and honor those relationships, you know, we want to stand by them and, um, you know, show our support. I mean, I know that it's talked about in circles, the history of the scarves, you know, and such, it just hasn't been talked about in the mainstream because this war is international now, right? And it's so prominent. So these, uh, you know, these um, stories and solidarity actions are coming to the forefront. Mm -hmm. Well, Marianne, I want to ask you, because this strikes close to home. We did a show on Native America Calling earlier this year, and it dealt with the killing of a young First Nations man whose name was Colton Bushy by a white farmer. And uh, for those of you who don't know, this killing occurred near Big R, Saskatchewan, which, Marion, is only about an hour's drive from Saskatoon, where you're from. And anybody who listened to that show we had, we had First Nations guests, and, and they shared some really ugly stories of deep-seated racism amongst those white farming communities towards First Nations people. 
And the fact that the killer got off basically with a slap on the wrist, uh, the way the victim and his family were portrayed by the media, comments from various white people who supported the farmer, it all reflected really badly on white people in that part of Canada. So what I find really intriguing is that there's also a population of white people in this region, your people, Marion, the Ukrainians, who, who don't share that negative history, that negative relationship with Native people. And again, Marion, why do you think it's, uh, it's only getting headlines now? Well, I think it's, in my opinion, um, people want peace in the world. The majority of people are good, in my opinion, and they want peace in the world. And this just brings it uh, forefront to the to the finish. And, you know, when COVID happened, you have the best of things happening and the worst of things happening. And at that time, I wrote a book called Race to Finish, which is human beings, if we don't start getting along with each other, it'll be the end of the human race. And we need to stand up. And it came out of the Black Lives Matter movement. It came out of uh, reconciliation and when they found all the graves and all the bad history, you know, that's where this book came out of. And I worked with Kevin Pierce, who is an Indigenous artist in Saskatoon, and he did a beautiful painting of reconciliation, and which, han- which is hanging in Edmonton, Alberta, in the University of Alberta, and uh, talks about reconciliation. But the same with my book, Kukum's Babushka. Um, different but good is the theme throughout my book. We are different as people, but we're good. And now my books have become tools for peace because I signed my, I've been signing my name since the beginning, Peace Mary Metella. We need to stand up and stand up for peace. And I wrote a poem in there called Stand Up. Uh, and it's, I think majority of people want peace in the world, and I think that's why it hits everybody's nerve, is that at, if you look at the history, there have been so many genocides and so many bad things happening with, with all the different movements, and now is the time that people want to stand up. And we need to be the voices, and I think the other ladies have said it so articulately, that we need to be the voices of change, uh, young people need the voices of change, and, and it's now the time to speak up for peace. Um, And, you know, when Ukrainians came here, uh, they were, the reason they left Ukraine, just like they're happening now, is because of war and and bad things happening to them. Majority of people would like to stay in their country. Uh, You know, you look at all the refugees, they want to stay in their country, but they're forced out because of war. And I think that is so important to recognize that as people, as individuals, we need to stand together for peace Mm -hmm. and stop Putin. Tools for peace, voices of change, speak up for peace. I couldn't agree with you more. Folks, we have reached the end of the hour. I'd like to say thank you to our guests, Brandy Morin, Marianne Mutala, Calandra Etsidi, and Shai Lucero for educating us on the history of the Kukum scarf and its recent resurgence as a symbol of solidarity with the people of Ukraine. Join us tomorrow for another enlightening discussion where we'll talk about the Russian settlement in Alaska and its lasting legacy. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. Smoking gave me COPD, which makes it harder and harder for me to breathe.
I have a tip for you. If your doctor gives you five years to live, spend it talking with your grandchildren. Explain to them that your grandpa's not going to be around anymore to share his wisdom and his love. I haven't figured out how to do that yet, and I'm running out of time. COPD makes it harder and harder to breathe and can cause death. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Support by Roswell Park, who know tribal communities face persistent challenges in health equity, such as cancer and higher death rates. The Center for Indigenous Cancer Research at Roswell Park Comprehensive Cancer Center is dedicated to advancing cancer research that will lead to translatable science, medicine, and cancer care for indigenous populations worldwide. Are you at high risk for cancer? A no-charge online assessment tool is available at roswellpark.org slash assess me. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.